that, of course, was the first um, 45, 60 seconds of um, the first recitative of Handel's Oratorio, The Messiah. The tenor's soaring words are taken from Isaiah 40, which will form the basis of um, our study this morning. Um, Although most of the scriptures will be on the screen, and I'll be using the NIV, I'd encourage you to open your Bible, whatever version you have, and read along with me or read your own version and sort of keep your thumb in Isaiah 40 because we'll be coming there frequently, and that's where we'll be spending most of our time. May 6th, next Wednesday, is National Nurses Day which begins National Nurses Week and it extends to May 12. We will do a more formal recognition of our nurses and our community nurses next week. But I wanted to take advantage of uh, this Sabbath in advance to dedicate this message to those frontline caregivers who over the last year have given so much of themselves. So reading from Isaiah 40. Comfort, comfort my people says the Lord your God. God is our comfort when we are worried. In the fall of 1941, the Philippines was a flower-scented paradise for the American Army and, nurses, Army and Navy nurses stationed there. You know, old eyes are a pain sometimes. War was a distant rumor, and life was a routine of easy shifts and evenings of dinners and dancing. On December 8, all that changed as Japanese bombed Bombs rained on American bases in Luzon, and the paradise became a fiery hill. In late December 1941, many of the nurses were assigned to a pair of battlefield hospitals on Bataan called Hospital 1 and Hospital 2. These hospitals included the first open-air open wards in U.S. history since the Civil War. Tropical diseases, including malaria and dysentery, were widespread among both the hospital patients and staff. By March, the hospitals held 8,800 patients. Caring for this group were 67 physicians, 83 nurses, and 250 enlisted soldiers and volunteers. Supplies were short. An average ward of 300 patients shared six medicine glasses, 15 thermometers, and a single teaspoon. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. God is our comfort when we are afraid. In the end, oops, skip the page there. In April, the battle to hold the peninsula of Bataan was lost, and the remaining troops withdrew to the island of Corregidor. For the most part, the nurses were appalled by the order, and many considered disobeying it. Their internal code demanded that they stay with their patients. In the end, they were forced to evacuate and leave 1,800 of their patients behind. Even 50 years later, as they were interviewed, they still spoke with bitterness and regret about the patients they had left behind. Just prior to the fall of Bataan on April 9, the nurses serving there were ordered to the island fortress of Corregidor by the commanding general at that time, General Wainwright. During the Battle of Corregidor, the nurses were stationed in a hospital wards in a maze of tunnels. In May, the remaining defenders of Corregidor were overwhelmed and surrendered. 
Although a few of the nurses, just seven or eight, were evacuated, most were herded into internment camps, enduring three years of fear and starvation. When Corregidor fell, 11 Navy nurses, 66 Army nurses, and one nurse anesthetist were captured and imprisoned in and around Manila. They continued to serve as a nursing unit while prisoners of war. A voice of one calling in, calling, in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. Though the, the, ground shall become, the rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all mankind together will see it, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All men are like grass, and their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because of the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are, are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. You who would bring good tidings to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good tidings to Jerusalem, Lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up and do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. God comforts us, comforts us when we behold him. The campus of the University of Santo Tomas was converted into an internment camp by the Japanese during the occupation of the Philippines. In addition to its civilian population, Santo Tomas became the initial internment camp for both the Army and Navy nurses with the army nurses remaining there until their liberation. In January 1944, control of the camp changed from the Japanese civil authorities to the Imperial Japanese Army, and who, with whom it remained until the war ended. Access to outside food sources was curtailed. The diet of the internees was reduced to 960 calories per day by November 1944, and further reduced to 700 calories per person by January 1945. A Department of Veterans Affairs study found that nurses on average lost 30% of their body weight during their internment and subsequently experienced all the horrors of, uh, uh, that the male POWs also suffered in the Pacific Theater. It is not only that they were some of the first women POWs that made them special, they were average Americans from average towns, and they survived a horrific environment while never losing their commitment to serving their patients. Known as the Angels of Baton and Corregidor, the nurses continue to hold the distinction of not losing a single member of their unit during the three years of internment. All 77 survived. In the internment camp, the nurses worked in the camp hospital. Instead of war injuries, they now needed to deal with various tropical diseases, dengue fever, beriberi, pellagra, and a whole host of parasitic infections. But malnutrition was the main problem. The camp contained a variety of nationals, Americans, Britons, Australians, Canadians, Dutch, Poles, Norwegians, and French, 3,800 men, women, and children. By 1945, there was little difference between the health of the nurses and the health of their patients and the work was really hard. It took all their energies to change a simple dressing or do a treatment. Any exertion exhausted them, and before moving to the next patient, they would need to <clears throat> excuse me, sit and rest. But every day, they reported for work. They worked because of who they were and their internal 
dedication to the mission of their lives as nurses. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power, and his arm rules for him. See, his reward is with him, and his recompense accompanies him. God rules over every problem. They worked and worked and waited for rescue. On February 3, 1945, the nurses were herded into a small building, and large barrels of kerosene were placed around the building. They thought the end had come, and they would all die. In the distance, they heard the rumbling of tanks approaching the building. Two figures stepped from a tank, and after a pause, one looked up and said in a broad East Texas accent, Howdy, folks, and they knew that rescue was at hand. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those who have young. God will take care of us. There is not much that we can count on in this world to bring us comfort. People die, move, divorce, hurt, and betray you. Money and things can be lost at the drop of a hat. Public opinion may turn against you, but God comforts us by showing us an image of his care in these verses. The demonstration by the nurses of courage did not stop at the end, <clears throat> excuse me, end of World War II. Nurses around the world have been called on to care for hospitalized COVID patients like never before. From patient care, to communicating with loved ones not allowed in the hospital, to being the only person at the bedside of patients as they pass away, nurses have been in the front line and have proved invaluable in the fight in this pandemic. Month after month of working in the high stakes environment of COVID has had a huge impact on the mental health and well-being of nurses. Eight out of 10 nurses responding to a nursing standard survey report their mental health has been affected by the pandemic, while six in 10 said their physical health was suffering. Long hours caring for patients, fears about contracting the virus, separation from loved ones, and pressure, pressure, pressure on the nurses has been unrelenting. Yet they continue to provide comfort and care more next week. Like I said, I had to take advantage of today, though. The words of Isaiah 40, 1 to 11, are the sort of words that you would see on a plaque in a Christian bookstore. But what we often miss, beyond the beauty of the words, is just how stunning the good news is here. It is not just the good news that came for people 2,700 years ago. It's good news for us. What brings you comfort? We speak of comfort food Food that reminds us of um, growing up. Comfort can be a warm blanket on a cold day or a hug from a loved one. Comfort can come from timely words that are shared that speak just to your situation. What would you want someone to say if they were trying to comfort you? What words would soothe your shattered heart? This story immediately pre preceding uh, Isaiah 40 in Isaiah 39 features King Hezekiah who hosts an envoy from the faraway country of Babylon. The book of Isaiah is split basically into two parts, pre-exile and post-exile. The destruction of Jerusalem is ever, never actually described in Isaiah. The destruction of Jerusalem and the exile is anticipated, is foretold in Isaiah 39 and only assumed then in Isaiah 40. Isaiah <coughs> said to Hezekiah, 
Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and all that your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. This would have been devastating news for the people who heard Isaiah. They were supposed to be a mighty nation, blessing the whole world. Instead, they are a hundred years away from being utterly destroyed. The news would have left them bitter and disillusioned. Isaiah, in a prophetic, prophetic vision, saw the day when Jerusalem would be destroyed. This happened over a hundred years later in 586 BC. The Babylonian army besieged Jerusalem. It was devastating. You can read about it in Jeremiah 52, which describes the fall of Jerusalem in detail. Thousands of people were taken captive and shipped away hundreds of miles. Only the poor were left behind. In Isaiah 40, the scene shifts. Isaiah is now looking even further into the future. He is picturing the day in the future when the exile has already happened and wants to offer words of comfort. If Isaiah 40 can be described with one word, that is the word comfort. It is a word of tenderness after a very long, very long dark night of judgment. Isaiah 40, 1 to 11, can be read as a prophetic response to um, the cries of pain that would echo from the book of Lamentations or from the end of Jeremiah. Into this devastating void, this time of despair, the prophet speaks promises of comfort and assurance. Knowing, however, that his audience will have been traumatized by war and exile, the prophet also works very hard to convince his audience that God's words are trustworthy. The people of Judah were told they were going to be taken captive, brought to Babylon in exile. Their future was bleak. Tomorrow held no promise for them. All they believed in and hoped for was going to be taken away from them. God had pronounced judgment on them for their disobedience, and they knew they had failed as a people, hurting, broken, disillusioned, and feeling forsaken and depressed. Life would have lost all of its zest. There was no sense in Isaiah at this point shaking a finger and saying, didn't I tell you this would happen? The time for scolding was done. Now God wanted to send another message. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and Proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for her sins. Comfort is not simply a pat on the back this, or, or sympathy from a good friend, not least in this case. The word comfort comes from the Latin and the, with two words, com and fortis, translated literally means with strength. To comfort, then, is to give give strength. God's intention in giving comfort to his people is to give them strength to do what needs to be done. When that strength is given, the sorrow of our broken hearts is not quite as heavy, and we can go on. What the Lord wanted Judah to know was that just because he had had to discipline them and allowed the exile to happen for their failures, he still loved them. We can also take comfort in this. We are loved. When we have experienced disappointments in life, a lost job, a broken relationship, he still loves you. Nothing 
in this life can separate us from the love of God. The words of Paul. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. In verses 3 to 11, there are three voices that speak. The first voice cries out, In the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight the wilderness a highway for our God. While the text seems to be directed to the exiles, the highway is not for them. It is for God. The implication in the imagery here is that God has abandoned Jerusalem, leaving it to the hands of the Babylonians. Verses 3 to 5 seek to reassure the audience that the time of God's long absence from Jerusalem will come to an end. These verses use language that set the stage for a king. When verse 3 says, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God, that is what it's talking about. It is announcing the arrival of a king. In the ancient world, a king would come, when, when a king would come to visit, the king's men would start out months ahead of time to go through the wilderness and prepare the road. These men would remove obstacles, fill in dips in the road, and dig through small hills if necessary so the king would not be hindered. For the privileged city, the reward was to see the king coming in all his royal glory. What do these words mean to the exiles? They took heart from them that their captivity would not last forever. The Lord would come to them and bring them home on this great road, and they would see his glory. Beyond the imagery of preparing a way for the king, I think it also tells us something about what the king will do when he arrives. When Jesus was born, a king came to earth, and not just any king. He is the long-awaited king who is unlike any other king we have ever seen. He is a king who reigns, but he also is a king who serves. Look at what this king does. Two things. First, he launches a major renovation project. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. The eastern approach to Jerusalem covers some rough terrain. Isaiah says that the king is going to change all of that. The prophet is not talking about changing the topography around Jerusalem. This king will level and smooth. It is another way of saying that Jesus came to fix things the way they should be. If you read the Gospels, you see this in the life and ministry of Jesus. He is always meeting sick people and making them well. He meets sinners and forgives them. He meets outcasts and invites them into the community. He proclaimed what his ministry would be in Luke 4 with another passage from Isaiah, Isaiah, this time Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, and he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus met people who were excluded by the religious of the day, and Jesus said that they are closer to the kingdom than the so-called good guys in the white hats. He is still doing that today, welcoming sinners and rebels, changing lives, and embracing the excluded. But that is not all the king does. The Lord will return to his holy city 
and again will be accessible. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed, it says in verse 5. The language is important. The glory of the Lord needs to be revealed because from the exile's perspective, he has been hidden. And a hidden God is a terrifying God. It seems at times that we are all wired to seek out glory. There is a quest inside of us to be amazed, to wonder at something, to have something around us that we look at that's so great and awesome and so compelling that we want to live for it, that we are willing to make sacrifices for it. It will be the thing that will get us up in the morning. If we are not captured by God's glory, then we'll be captured by some lesser glory. But when Jesus came, he revealed God's glory to us. And the word became flesh and dwelt among it, us. And we have seen the glory, glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In Jesus, we see the glory of God, not just the glory that Moses saw, not just the glory that the shepherds saw, not just the glory the disciples saw when he was transfigured, but the glory of God who is willing to die for us. A second voice speaks of further comfort. A voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All men are like grass, and, the, and they're all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The glass, grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass, grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Grass and spring flowers are temporary, and green lawn is really difficult to maintain, especially in drought-filled California. Spring flowers will wilt in the summer heat. People are like grass and flowers. They do not last forever. Their glory, like flowers, can be so short, only for a season. For the exiles, these words were a comfort. That meant, like, like Assyria before them, Babylon would not last forever. Babylon seemed so powerful and so confident, but they, like grass, will fade away from power. Trouble is just for a time, but God's word is forever. God's word is eternal. Beyond that, I think Isaiah emphasizes how temporary we all are. Even if we are good, which we are not, we would not be around long enough to bring about any real change. You cannot count on people but you can count on God. Isaiah makes it clear that God's promise does not depend on us. It depends on God's word, and God's word always stands. And his word tells us that God loves us and gave his son for us so that sin would not hold us and that we would have life in Jesus. The third voice proclaims that God is here and is powerful. You who bring good tidings to Zion, Go up on a high mountain, you who bring good tidings to Jerusalem. Lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. We have two images of God that follow. The first is of a great ruler, the sovereign God who has power and might to rule the universe. He is the rightful king of Israel. The second image is God as a shepherd. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He carries the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. How do you sort of blend these two contrasting images as a, as a message of comfort? 
The, the transition from ruler to shepherd is not as abrupt as you might think as if you think of King David. The Lord is not a powerless monarch, but a king with great strength in actions. And he is as intimately loving as a shepherd. Those strong ruling arms are the same arms that reach down and carry you in your pain. He carries us close to his heart and tenderly listens to each of our needs. Isn't this a picture of the ministry of Jesus? Isaiah has shown us again and again through his prophecies the Messiah as the shepherd king. Jesus himself said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. The paradox of a great ruler as a shepherd, of the Almighty as a comforter, of God as a man, is climaxed in the power of the cross, the power of God visibly displayed on the cross. Here is your God suffering for you on the cross. Jesus could have come as a judge. Instead, he came as a shepherd. He is powerful, but he, is not, but he comes not in power, but in humility and tenderness. He gently makes provision for the weak. He cares for those who, who have needs. He cares very powerfully and very particularly for each of us. Isaiah makes a powerful argument for the Lord in the next several verses, 12 through 26. I'm not going to cover that this morning, but I would encourage you to read it for yourself this afternoon. It's a powerful message. I want to move towards the conclusion of this chapter, beginning with verse 27. Isaiah asked, What do you say, O Jacob, and complain, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord. My cause is disregarded by my God. Isaiah anticipated that people would complain that their captivity was evidence that God no longer cared for them. Trouble would cloud their vision so that it seemed that God had abandoned them. Such as it always is with people with saddened hearts. Isaiah responds, Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, their creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. At times, we may believe that God is too great, sitting on, his, on the throne of the universe to care about our tiny little problems. The truth is, is he's too great not to care. His greatness is that he does care, and he does not abandon his purpose, that is, to care for his sheep. His capacity to care is beyond our imaginations. This is the comfort we spoke of earlier. The Lord gives strength to us to keep on going. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow, not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. These are words of comfort to all our hearts. The Lord loves you, and he is coming to reveal his glory to you in your life and in whatever situation you found yourself. But we are not comforted just for ourselves. 2 Corinthians 1. Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort who comforts us in all our troubles 
so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. For just as the sufferings of Christ flow ever into our lives, so also through Christ we, our comfort overflows. You know, there's bad news all around us every day. We don't have to really go out of our way to look for it. Bad news just comes. You probably have already had enough bad news in your life. But we have good news today. The good news is that God speaks words of comfort to us today. A king has come to, to restore and reveal. He promises, his promises to you are secure. And they're not just promises to the world in general. They are promises to each of us as individuals. He carries you. He tends to you. He cares for your needs. The good news is that the king has come, and you can count on it. The words of Isaiah 40 tell us that God is love, God is near, and they were, we are not abandoned regardless of our circumstances. But God's way of giving comfort is not to make us comfortable, but rather to give us the strength to do what needs to be done. It's said as believers that we have in our hands either healing salve or a bottle of rubbing alcohol. As we interact with hurting, wounded people, we either comfort them with salve or we throw alcohol on their wounds. One brings healing and the other intense pain. What are we carrying in our hands today? Healing salve or rubbing alcohol? I am proud to be a member of this church that has dedicated so much of its resources and volunteers to bring comfort and healing to the community through the hands and hearts of those who serve in community ser services and the Auburn Renewal Center. But beyond that, we are each called to give comfort to those around us. We all fail at times to bring healing and offer, out of our best intentions, pour alcohol on the wounds of others. Isaiah 40 reminds us that we have responsibility to be a part of God's ministry to provide comfort to those that are hurting. Isaiah 40 describes an everlasting strength, an everlasting hope, an everlasting comfort, an everlasting truth, an everlasting kingdom, an everlasting God. Comfort, comfort my people, says the Lord your God. If you all just stand and we'll have the blessing as we close. Um, I thought for the closing blessing, I'll just again share the final words of Isaiah 40. Do you not know, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Amen. May you have a wonderful week, and we'll see you next week.